Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Stacy. <laughs> Stacy's mom? <laughs> At what? Best, no, I'm that's something Stacey's different. Mom. <laughs> and our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumlupste Sequetan territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequetan Ulu. And today's text, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, is set in San Diego, the traditional home of the Kumayes peoples. Joe. Mm hmm. I can't believe I'd never seen Fast Times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> <laughs> yes, happy 40th anniversary to this movie, this uh, iconic movie for a lot of people. But yeah, you had never seen it. No, and what's weird is it's one of those texts that, you know, much like Scream, I knew all the cultural reference points in Scream mm -hmm. before I watched it also for this show. Um, and so likewise, when you watch Fast Times at Ridgemont High, especially if you've seen well, like any parody of mm -hmm. teen culture in the last yeah. 40 years, you know what a lot of the beats are going to be. And there are parts of this film that have not aged well. But overall, I genuinely enjoyed watching it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's unusual, right? Because we were talking before we started recording about how this film is a little bit unique in that it doesn't really have a through line. Like yeah. this is uh, a year in the lives of different high school kids. And we go on a bunch of different adventures. But in some ways, it just feels very loose and free. A good reason why you shouldn't watch this for the first time when you're 39 and a half years old, though, is mm. because I 100% stand Mr. Hand. I'm like, you go, oh, yeah. Mr. Hand. You're great. Yeah. You're amazing. Uh -huh. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> I know yeah. he's the villain, but I love him and I want to be him. <laughs> uh, I mean, the funny thing is, is I wouldn't even say that he is the villain because this movie doesn't really have good guys and bad guys. It seems to have a couple of lead characters and then other people who sort of flit in and out. But yeah, I mean, I love that one of the B plots of this movie is just this teacher who's like, all of my students are on drugs and why can't they come to class on time? Like that's a plot <laughs> in this movie. It really is. It's a great plot, actually. Well, it's very relatable to people like you and I. Yeah, it's very true. It's very, very true. Okay, so you said, you know, it's a bit weird to watch this movie at your age. And obviously, mm. it has shown its age. But overall, mm. what did you think of this movie? Yeah, I did genuinely enjoy it. I think the plot lines, you know, teenage girls wondering if they should get rid of their virginity, like mm -hmm. uh, stoners who just want to be left to their own devices. These are these are plots we've seen before. Uh, right. And so in many ways, this is like the Ur text, I guess, for a lot of those mm -hmm. stories, which, you know, on the one hand, it makes it kind of unfair to this movie to watch it on its 40th anniversary, because things that probably felt really fresh and exciting and surprising mm -hmm. don't anymore. Right. But ultimately, the cast is extremely likable. Yeah. Um, the characters have great chemistry, 
pretty much across the board. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it was a lot of fun, honestly. And I was yeah. kind of surprised. I wasn't sure if it was just going to feel ancient and it doesn't. Yeah, there's a few things that at this particular moment in time feel incredibly relevant, like the subplot about Jennifer Jason Lee's protagonist character, Stacy, needing to get an abortion and not being supported by the guy who knocks her up, but also she just pays the money, goes to the clinic, and gets it done. I was like, oh, 40 years old, hey? And I'm trying not to swear because this is the YA podcast, but also, wow, 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 Brenna. This is something that a lot of cultural historians have done a bunch of work on, which is that in the period immediately after Roe versus Wade, people were widely and wildly supportive of abortion, largely Mm -hmm. because most people knew someone who had been harmed or or killed in the process of trying to access reproductive care. Like that was something that was very immediate and on the surface for a lot of people. And so the matter of factness with which this movie deals with abortion, I mean, it's stunning compared to Mm -hmm. the kinds of, you know, I always go back to Juno and the Schmushmorshman, right? Like the, (laughs) (laughs) the idea that that film is 30 years out from this film, it really shows how, I think that in many ways, safe access to abortion made people complacent about the importance of abortion in healthcare. And mm-hmm. I think you see that in this film. Like when Brad picks Stacy up at the abortion clinic, he's just like, there's no judgment. He's like, nope. who was it? He wants to know who the guy is. But mm-hmm. like, because he wants to go beat him up. And the reason he wants to go beat him up isn't even really for having sex with his sister, it's for leaving her high and dry at the abortion clinic. Yes. Right? Exactly. The dynamics here are so different to what mm-hmm. we we expect to see. And I I was really fascinated by that for sure. Yeah. And then you compare it with some of the abortion dramas that we've talked about on the show, like never, rarely, sometimes, always. And you're just like, oh, it's a night and day difference. Like It's completely different. We shouldn't be having movies like the latter because... We have already moved beyond this topic, like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. 40 years ago, Uh abortion is no big deal because it shouldn't be a big deal because it's just about what people want to do with their bodies. Well, I have a question for you, Joe. This is like a cinema history question, I guess. Mm -hmm. Do you think some of that has to do with the fact that we have a woman director here? And was that as surprising for 1982 as it seems to me looking back? Yeah, it's a good question. So part of the reason that this movie was on my radar is because I was listening to Karina Longworth's podcast, You Must Remember This, and she wrapped up a themed uh, 10 or 12 episode arc called Erotic 80s. And this was Mm -hmm. one of the films that she ended up addressing. Because uh, Brenna, you may or may not know this, but the Phoebe Cates coming out of the pool in slow motion in her red bikini and bearing her breast was like a huge cultural milestone like well that is one of the scenes that has been parodied and homaged to death so when Mm -hmm. i finally saw it i was like oh kind of anticlimactic (laughs) a little bit yeah except for brad who of course you know manages to do what he does but uh (laughs) ciao (laughs) what i kept it (laughs) g-rated 
But yeah, um, I, I do think that the other discussion about this was what Amy Heckerling, who we previously discussed when we talked about Clueless, she basically has two iconic films in her resume. And this is the first one. This is her feature debut. And she apparently really had to fight to keep some of this in here. And I do believe the abortion piece. And just like regards to female sexuality in general were things that she had to go that extra mile for, even though this film was written by a man who, of course, is Cameron Crowe, the other famous director who has gone on to do other uh, similarly iconic texts of his own. And something we didn't realize until after it was too late to change the format of the episode. This Mm -hmm. is actually based on a book. Cameron Crowe wrote the book first before uh, adapting it into the screenplay. And I read a bit of the book. I had some, I found it. First of all, it's really, really hard to find. Mm -hmm. I found it and I read a little bit of it. Basically, Cameron Crowe goes undercover. This was in his writing for Rolling Stone era. People may or may not know that Cameron Crowe was writing for Rolling Stone when he was 15 years old. But towards the end of that period of his life, he was about 22, and he went undercover at Claremont High School in San Diego um, and wrote about the experiences of the teen characters there. It's Mm -hmm. really funny to read about that process, though, because Cameron Crowe, at the end of his one year, like, embedded in this high school, he didn't want to grow up. He was like, I'm really enjoying being a teenager again. And the only reason he kind of had to snap out of it was to actually produce the book. Right. And he ended up not creating himself as a character in it, but instead it's just sort of, well, actually, it's very much like the film. It's a very episodic, mm-hmm. like, moments in these characters' lives. Okay. I don't know. It reminds me a lot of, like, Chuck Klosterman's writing from that period. Like, mm-hmm. it's very cool and detached and okay. steeped in kind of pop culture references. It, sure drives me crazy now but i would have loved it if i had found this book in high school for sure that was very much my jam (laughs) right yeah before you take the critical distance away and we're like "Eh, okay well (laughs) exactly okay yeah i mean i'm i'm curious to know if you felt like there were particularly female touches because one of the things that i was really hyper aware of was the female nudity versus the complete lack of male nudity and that to me felt like something that heckerling maybe wasn't necessarily interested in doing like a tit for tat piece but it struck me as odd because i'm used to seeing films of this ilk like a kind of porkies thing where you might see boys bums in like a jokey sort of reference we did see a penis yeah we do um when they're having sex in the pool house Uh, and he takes his pants off there's because i was surprised by it i was like oh we're doing this not that exciting but um... (laughs) i mean let's be honest it's human genitalia it's like (laughs) everybody's got it different parts (laughs) yeah um well it's interesting you ask that joe because i think for me what stuck out compared to other kind of sex romps like can Mm -hmm. we can we put this in the sex romp genre i think so yeah um is that the women talk to each other right and it's not i mean it wouldn't pass a bechdel test because they only talk to each other about the other boys but right it is fascinating to see the way the women bond over their sexual escapades Mm -hmm. in a way that i don't think we usually get to see in movies like this right it's interesting because in the book 
we start from Stacy's perspective, and it's very much like the reason she loves working at it's an ice cream parlor in the book, but I feel like it's more like a diner in the movie. Yeah, it's a like a burger joint. Or no, sorry, it's a pizza joint. Yeah, and so she um the reason she likes working there in the book is because all the women congregate in the back in the kitchen mm-hmm. and talk about the men who right. come into the restaurant. And she's never experienced that before. It's like Stacy gets her mind completely blown apart by the idea of like female intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I loved seeing that in the film. I thought it was really well done. You know, I, would I have loved for them to talk about something else? Yes. But, right. <laughs> but even just the idea of like these young women kind of banded together to support each other through the sexual politics of their town. I just, mm-hmm. I really dug that. I thought I thought Hackerling did a very good job with that. Yeah, it, it's interesting, right? Because in some ways, this film is incredibly gendered, at least yes. in the main story with uh, Stacy and Linda. I, I don't want to say versus Mike and Rat, because really, they're all just sort of circling around each other's orbits. But it is interesting that this film is very comfortable giving women agency, mm-hmm. especially with regard to their sexuality. Like, that's what that's part of the movie is about. And then, of course, you've got Spicoli versus Mr. Han. And then you've got Brad basically just trying to find who he is in life through a variety of really incredibly part-time minimum wage jobs. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I, I really liked the sexual frankness of this. You know, this idea that it's just sex and you don't mm-hmm. need to worry about it so much. Like, it is a familiar conceit that we do see a lot in these sex romps. But it's not hand-wringing like American mm-hmm. Pie would be, which is coming out a full 17 years later after this movie, right? Like, I completely forgot that Stacy goes out with this older man and basically just has sex on the first date and then she gets it over with. Yes. Yeah. And that is also where the book opens is Stacy wants to get this whole having sex thing out of her system. Like just mm-hmm. get it over with her first time, just get it right. out, of with, out of the way. And um, yeah, I kind of love that. It's also, I feel like sort of meditations on virginity like this were very mm-hmm. big in the 80s like i yeah, think yeah. there was a lot of it i remember reading a lot of books like 12 year old girls obsessed with when or if they would ever lose their virginity and mm-hmm. when i was watching it i was thinking about how well how we've taken this kind of puritanical shift you know we oh, already sure. talked about it in relation to abortion but like i think about purity culture And how, you know, 20 years on from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, teenagers were absolutely, like, this was not the vibe Mm -mm. (laughs) of a high school in 2002, right? Because there was this strong influence of, well, evangelical culture and and the Mm -hmm. notion of um, purity and, and what that means for young women. And, you know, intellectually, we know that there's not like, an arc (laughs) that people Mm -hmm. move forward and back that culture changes based on all kinds of inputs. But you watch something like fast times at Ridgemont high. And then you think about the way sex got talked about, like when you and I were in high school, where there was Mm -hmm. this sort of, there was a real dividing line. I remember a real dividing line between teenagers who were having sex and teenagers who were like going to abstinence club at school. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And that, there is no abstinence club at Richmond High, right? There's not no. even like everybody is 
everybody is sexually active. Even the nerdy characters are sexually active. Like there's just this sense of it being a very normal part of being Mm -hmm. 16, 17, 18 years old, right? Yeah, I I can't help but feel like this is a best case situation. I mean, I also think that this film is a bit of a caught in amber kind Mm. of example, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I look at this film, it would have been shot in about 1981, or maybe early 1982. But the reality is, is that this is a pre AIDS movie, like, AIDS would have been already out in the world but at this point in time it still would have been considered either an emergent piece or it would have been primarily associated with gay men so especially in a teenage film we wouldn't really be talking about that you know there isn't even really a reference to stis in this movie it's more about are you having sex are you not do you want some what kind of sex would you like and that sort of free spiritedness is something that we will lose as the decade moves on mm-hmm. as Reagan takes over we become increasingly more conservative it's more about abstinence but also it's about sex isn't something that will kill you yet well this is very much a shift that we see in something like Degrassi which comes out right. in the mid 80s mid to late 80s we see plot lines on Degrassi now Perhaps because it's in a Canadian context, not an American one. Mm-hmm. Degrassi is still extremely sex positive overall, I think, for right. its period of time. Mm-hmm. But it is all about safety and protection and right. looking yeah. after yourself and all those kinds of things. And and yeah, that's not even a reference. Like, Stacey gets pregnant. There's no mention of a condom in, the, in the previous discourse, right? Like, no. no mention of it at all. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's all kinds of things happening here. This is the this is pre the evangelical shift of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. It's pre AIDS, or at least pre AIDS as a component of the zeitgeist. Right. And it's uh, it it really is like it's like watching a moment in time, and it's kind of fascinating to see how free everyone feels. Like mm-hmm. it's hard not to kind of I don't know, like somewhat envy this high school experience. Right. There's not a sense, you know what, this is also pre, this is pre, like, expansive standardized testing. Mm. None of these people are studying for the SATs or freaking out about anything, right? And, like, I think that there was kind of a moment late, maybe from the late 60s through to the mid 80s, where being a teenager was sort of emergent as a phase of life. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it kind of seems sort of magical in a lot of ways. Oh, I I fully agree. There's something so exuberantly free about this. Like the whole movie takes place over an academic year at school, but it also feels like a summer party movie Mm -hmm. in some regards, right? Like we fully see these students going to class, but it's so episodic and the episodes are always comedic, right? Like Mm -hmm. apart from the stuff with Mr. Hand, which even those feel heavily heavily informed by comedy right like mm-hmm. watching Spicoli get a best. pizza delivered to the classroom and mr hand lose his mind is <laughs> funny but the stuff with like mr vargas the biology teacher taking them to go to the morgue in a kind yeah. of scared straight storyline watching them cheat on the test in all these like really super creative means i don't know there's something so playful about Mm -hmm. everything in this movie like there's no stakes even though really the movie is talking about these kids growing up learning adult life lessons and moving towards maturity 
Well, it's interesting that you use the phrase sort of open or free when you were describing it, because one little tidbit that I did read about the film, it ends with like, you know, and this is what happened to Stacy, and mm-hmm, this is what happened to mm-hmm. Mark. And Amy Heckerling didn't want that. She fought to have a really open-ended film ending. Right. But unfortunately, American Graffiti uh, had made uh, a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And the sort of structural framing of American Graffiti became kind of like the template for a time. And right. so she lost that fight with the studio. But it's interesting because it it totally seems out of place when you get to the end of the movie. And it's like, and this is specifically what happened to each of these people. It's like, wait, but what? <laughs> yeah. And this is how we wrap up their entire lives, even though the whole point of the film is about, no, we don't need that because it's not really about that at all. It's so funny. Can we talk about how many famous people are in this movie? <laughs> Holy moly. Yeah. I mean, I'll confess, I was trying to keep a lookout for Nicolas Cage, and I think I totally missed him, which means I also missed Anthony Edwards. But uh, when Forrest Whitaker showed up, I was like, holy, what? Okay, cool. Forgot yeah. all about you. So Nicolas Cage is in the kitchen scenes and okay. at one of the restaurants that um, Brad works at, and Eric Stoltz and Anthony Edwards are the two buddies who sit at the table with Spicoli uh, when they go into the restaurant shirtless. Right. Okay. And the only reason I got that is because I looked up stills because I didn't catch it either. Okay. But there's so many great stories. I read a bunch of like oral histories of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which I highly Mm -hmm. recommend you Google and do. It's a lot of fun. My favorite is that Nicolas Cage is actually credited as Nicolas Coppola in this film. Of course. Oh, yeah. And this film is the reason why he changed his name, uh, because he said that everybody made fun of him for having a famous last name. And they used to stand outside his trailer. Apparently, they used to stand outside his trailer and say, I love the smell of Nicholas in the morning, apparently. Wow. (laughs) But then I read Judge Reinhold saying that, because Nicholas Cage was like, I was bullied so terribly on that film that I changed my name. And- Judge Reinhold said that Nicolas Cage arrived on set and on his first day at the craft table told everyone that Francis Ford Coppola was his uncle and he was going to be famous because of Francis Ford Coppola's connections. And everybody was like, wow, we don't like you. (laughs) So he bragged about it and that was like, oh, maybe that wasn't the best thing to do because now I'm just being taunted and and teased about it. Yes, exactly. So anyway, I love that. Yeah, I mean, if, if nothing else, one of the fun things is like seeing baby Jennifer Jason Lee, yes. seeing this absolutely ridiculous, like, I, I don't love the Spicoli character, but I totally understand why people gravitate towards yeah. Sean Penn's performance. But it's also such a weird performance from <laughs> who you know Sean Penn will become after yeah. the fact. It is. It's very, very odd to watch. And it's very, it's so broad, right? Like, even Mm -hmm. his stoner accent is like, nobody in the history of the world talks like that. Like, what are we doing here? It's him and Polly Shore in, like, Encino Man and (laughs) various other properties. (laughs) I will say, watching this, and then I watched uh, Gremlins 1 and 2 for my horror podcast, it always strikes me as such a shame that Phoebe Cates doesn't go on to have a better career. And mm. I've gathered that she's actually happy having sort of retired from the limelight. But I think she's just such a vibrant presence in these movies. It makes me really sad we don't get more of her. I um, I agree. I really liked her. I was very distracted every mm-hmm. time. Who's the actor who plays Mike Damone? Because every time he's his voice is so deep. It's like right. almost distracting in the context of all these other like 
teenage in quotation mark characters. Incidentally, none of the characters are actually teenagers of or none of the actors, except for Nicolas Cage, who lied about his age to get ah, the part. But they were we shooting such long days, they couldn't actually use teenagers. This was before right. they tried to structure filming days so that young people could be on sets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Age-appropriate actors for age-appropriate performances or roles. Yeah, we're not doing that. (laughs) Yeah. You're talking about Robert Romanus, by the way. That's Mike. The deepest voice I've ever heard in my life. Mm Mm-hmm. He's an interesting character because he... You wouldn't think that he's going to have the arc that he does because he's introduced as just a kind of another flaky secondary character. Like, oh, he's the one who thinks he knows about relationships and women and he's advising Rat and you know that Rat is going to end up with Stacy. Mm-hmm. And yet then all of a sudden we get into that heaviest arc with the abortion side plot and... I don't know. It, it's weird because it almost feels like a level of seriousness that we're not seeing in the rest of the film. And it's a real heel turn for Mike where you kind of thought he was a bit of a, I don't know, just an opportunist because he yeah. was always like selling people tickets at inflated prices. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, he's a cad, but not yeah. necessarily by choice. Like watching him try to make the phone calls to get the money to pay for the abortion and not being able to get it and just sort of throwing his hands up and saying okay well i guess i'm gonna be the bad guy now it's almost heartbreaking yeah it's that whole plot line is very strange because you know part of the nature of the episodicness of the film means that like we don't always have a lot of backstory and so mm-hmm. there's one moment where mike is talking to stacy about rat and she's like i don't think i like rat i think i like you and i was like wait what mm-hmm. <laughs> where is this coming from exactly well, it's because when she went out with Rat, he was so nervous that he didn't want to make out with her. So she just took that to mean he obviously doesn't have any interest in me because it never even occurred to her. Oh, maybe guys are just as shy or as bad at intimacy as some women are. Yeah, no, I know. It's just the pivot to to yeah. Mike that is, I mean, convenient. It is a little bit out of, out of the blue, right? Like reading yeah. the plot synopsis, it makes it sound like it's a love triangle. And I think it's just a case of, oh, you're here at the right time. So I guess I'll turn to you. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, some other people in the cast, while we're talking about famous faces, uh, Bruce Springsteen's sister is in this movie in a minor mm-hmm. appearance, okay. as is Lana Clarkson, who would go on to most famously be the murder victim of Phil Spector. Oh, gosh. It's wild. It's Mm -hmm. wild. Nancy Wilson from Heart is in this movie. It's almost like um, between Cameron Crowe and Amy Heckerling, they just like cast all the people they knew. Mm. (laughs) It's a very strange group of people who are cast in this movie. Apparently, um, Judge Reinhold was like living in an apartment above Amy Heckerling, and that's how he got the part. It, yeah. it almost makes it seem like Hollywood is a town populated by about 20 people and they all know each other. So they just cast <laughs> each other in their movies. And then, you you know, it's really before the explosion of media where there's now a million movies and TV shows that get made and nobody knows each other. Although, you know, obviously we have joked numerous times about the sort of Netflix connection where people... If you work on one property, it's like you're contractually obliged to then show up in five other properties. And it almost feels like an early uh, version of that, right? Well, one of the things I loved the most was reading about like the alternate history casting of this film. So four Mm. people who were considered but didn't get parts or who turned down parts. So Tom Hanks was Mm -hmm. considered for the Judge Reinhold role but didn't get it. 
wasn't yeah. considered a comic actor enough, which I find hilarious. Right. Justine Bateman was offered the role uh, of Linda Barrett, mm-hmm. but she turned it down because obviously family ties. Mm-hmm. Matthew Broderick was offered the role of Spicoli. Oh, oh, uh, see, that's funny. I would have thought of him for Rat. I would have too. No, Spicoli. And he turned it down because his dad was really sick and he stayed home to look after his dad. Aww. I know. And then Jodie Foster was considered for the role no. of Stacey Hamilton, mm-hmm. but ultimately, ultimately rejected. Isn't that a wild four people? This movie would have been an entirely different film. I, I do love hearing about those because especially when the film takes off and you hear about it after the fact. And it's like, here's the list of 25 actresses who went in to read for this part. And you're like, yeah, but how many of them were actually seriously considered? Yeah. Whereas in this case, it's like, oh, those people were offered the roles or they were like this close to being in the running. And yeah, it would have been wild, right? Can you imagine Jodie Foster and Tom Hanks? As siblings, I'm just dying. So weird. (laughs) So weird. Uh, Yeah, so... Now you can say you crossed Fast Times at Ridgemont High off your list. I'm really glad we watched it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's not my favorite YA film. It's fascinating to see how its cultural legacy has evolved over the years. Like, in hindsight, it's not one that I would have thought would have had the longevity. And yet 40 years later, it's still, as you said, you know, gets referenced, gets parodied. It shows up in all sorts of places. And I think that's kind of fascinating. You know, overall, as I say, I really enjoyed watching it. It gives me a place to put a lot of those cultural pieces. It's kind of like a puzzle piece mm-hmm. fitting in. Um, and also, I think this has been our most trivia heavy episode ever because I was just <laughs> so fascinated by all of the legs little quirky details that you learn about a movie that's this important 40 Mm -hmm. years down the road so super glad we did this thanks joe there we go so brenna next week we're going to go for something a little bit more light and fluffy we're gonna check out hulu's lesbian rom-com crush And Brenna, what is our next book club if people want to be reading along with us? Yes, and they should be because you've only got a couple of weeks left. We're going to be reading The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. Um, And I've alluded to this before, but we're going to talk about some of the issues around Sherman Alexie, but also Mm -hmm. why we decided to hang on to this text. It is uh, obviously a banned book, part of Banned Book Club. We're going to Mm -hmm. talk about all of that, and it's going to be a good conversation, I think, Joe. Yeah, this is actually one of the few banned books that I've actually read before we program them. So I'm interested to see if I still like it or if I can distance myself from some of the controversy. Yeah, I think it's going to be a good one. So if people are reading along for Band Book Club, how do they get in touch? Okay, so if it's short, you can find us on the Twitters at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Um, But if you've got something more long form, like we like to get for Book Club, it's Mm -hmm. HKHSPod at gmail.com. Your emails always delight us, so please, Uh please remember to write in. We love it. Um, Joe, if they want to find you to share, I don't know stills of the brief male nudity in fast times at richmond high where did they find you <laughs> i will accept yes uh, i can be reached at b still by remote and that's the letter b and i'm at brenna c gray that's gray with an a uh yeah so you know what we're reading and you know what we're watching and until next time i will see you on the page and i will see you on the screen
Yeah, it's very true. It's very, also you're very, very quiet. Come closer to the mic, please. It's very true. It's very very true. I didn't say ASMR. <laughs> See, now you've got note take for the end of the episode. I gifted I that you. to you. <laughs> wow, thank you so much. <laughs> okay. So if people are reading along and they want to get their thoughts in about the part-time diary, nope. <laughs>